This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right, I see the numbers going. Quick, make a podcast. (laughs) All right, we watched the movie Gather. Um, It was not what I had hoped. I mean, it's about Native American food stuff, right? And every once in a while, I was kind of like, ooh, ooh, there it is. There it goes. See it. There it goes. And other time, I think, like, I'm going to pick a number out of the air. 65% of it was really kind of political. Does that sound about right? It's definitely more focused. I would say it's definitely more focused on people rather than agriculture and food. Yeah. I, we should say who all is here. So uh, we've got Scott. Hello. Jen. I'm Jen. Hi. <laughs> My name is Josiah. Yes. Yesterday we did the thing with the greenhouse update. Paul, you're Paul. And I am Paul, Lord of the Jungle. Sure, Paul. Me and Tarzan are like cousins. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and we have the same girlish figure. <laughs> Luckily, not the same outfit. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. His is a more southern style. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. So so yesterday we were doing one of those greenhouse updates, and there was uh, Des and Dustin doing push-ups. Like, do they do competitive push-ups throughout the day or something? Um, well, so not really competitive. It's more cooperative. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, try to do 100 push-ups before the end of the day. Right. Um, and so every time, you know, you're like, switch in between tasks you have a lag moment it's like well I'm going to do 20 push-ups you do that five times throughout the day you get to 100 okay huh? interesting uh. how people choose to live their lives <laughs> yeah whack alright um I I it pained me to watch this <clears throat> I mean the things I was looking for the things I was hoping for the, the, there was a little bit a smattering and and there were a couple things that I learned and I was kind of thinking like yeah neat um, but I kind of feel like when I was a younger man I did focus on this kind of thing where it was like there's a lot of problems in the world and those guys are fucking everything up and I hate those guys for fucking everything up and they should stop fucking everything up and at some point in time I change speeds where it's like I want to try and build good things rather than being angry at the bad guys so um, I thought there was a lot of angry in this and everybody's nodding your, their heads. I disagree. No. Okay. Ooh. Ooh. I mean, I think I think that. Well, for one, I th- I think that everybody kind of has to go on this arc of you know the the film was a great story in that it's like why is there no native food tradition? Because 
their culture's gone. Why is their culture yeah. gone? And so you're operating, everything about the film was like, we're operating in this vacuum of culture. We don't know how to do this. You know, how, there's one person in the tribe who knows how to do this, and they're teaching everyone else. It's, it's about that, you know, that re-integration uh, of something that was lost. And that's just the state of our food system at large, too. You can talk about permaculture that way as well. You know, um, most of the, the work that we do with permaculture is trying to spread the awareness of these systems. And, you know, eventually you get to the point where you have to build the system, right? Yeah. No, and, no. and everyone in the movie is doing that. Right. They are building cool things. They're yeah. teaching. It's true. Yeah. They're, they're doing the practices. They're, um, you know, Some they're, more than others. I think all of the main characters um, were actively uh, producing food. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. True. True. Um, real quick, I want to go around the room and get an idea of, like, how much Native American does any of us have? And if you know, which which tribe? Is anybody? Zero. I think, I think You're zero. Yeah. No. My mother's side of the family thought they had some, but then we did, like, this ancestry DNA thing, and it said, nuh-uh, so probably okay. none. Uh, okay. <laughs> I have been told that somewhere on my mother's side, she has a great, great aunt who is, like, full-blood Cherokee. So... I might have some Cherokee, and if you meet my brother, he looks like he might be Cherokee. So okay. somewhere in there, there's something. All right. But, All right. like, no connection. I don't think any of us have any connection to, like, Native ancestry or culture in a real way. Yeah, yeah. like in the substantive well, way. Oh, okay, fair yeah. enough. I mean, I've got a fair piece. Oh, cool. And it's Salish. So I'm part of the Salish tribe. Um my dad kind of refuses to talk about it. <laughs> I wants to pretend like it. But when you look at my dad, he 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 looks pretty. He looks. He's got a fair bit of native look to him, you know. And uh, uh, he also kind of looks a little bit like Saddam Hussein. <laughs> but I'm sure that he doesn't have any of that blood in him. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that if you tried to if I tried to suggest, I'm sure that I'd probably get a punch in the mouth. <clears throat> but that's another story for another day. Uh, but all right, <clears throat> um, I yeah I, I agree. There was a lot of uh, those the people that we were watching were like trying to rediscover the roots, and some of them were they're each traveling a different path. Um, I was I was pained when they started kind of talking about because you know as much as out of the four of us I must have the most uh, native stuff and um, I don't and I kind of feel like I have a dreamy love of native stuff and Sepp Holzer does too in fact when Sepp Holzer was here he spent a whole day going to one of the tribes and they just like damn near worshipped the guy and they gave him a fuck ton of gifts and shit and he thinks Native American stuff is super cool and um, I never I never told him about my Native connection and, it, and I kind of feel like nah it doesn't it doesn't really matter He, I got more important things to talk to him about um but, like, I did the HUSP thing, right? And so I've got podcasts where I mentioned HUSP, and I'm super keen on that. And it's like, I feel like it's very positive. And, and on the thread on Permies, when I would try to talk about it, I had, like, I don't know, 50 different people wanting to correct me. And I'm kind of like, no, fuck wit. 
It's my imagination. You can't correct my imagination. Go get your own fucking imagination and do your own fucking thing. No, no, no. You're not understanding what I'm saying. The Indians would fucking kill each other, man. And it's like, that's not even in my imagination thing. Fuck with. Go away. <laughs> and so all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, like, I got a pretend thing total fucking fiction it's so pretendy with extra pretend sauce on it that all I'm trying to do is say like I'm imagining a thing in my imagination all pretendy like where there's a place where they followed some standards that were started by the people who lived here 500 years ago maybe 400 years ago and they told the white people to fuck off and in my pretend environment that's in my brain that's all pretend and fiction and everything we end up 400 years later with something that is awesome and it becomes kind of like uh, uh, this place becomes a health mecca for the world when people talked about plowing they're like not for us when they started talking about sprays it's like not for us and so in the end people who come to this pretend place in my imagination which is a fiction then they their 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 sicknesses and health problems just magically disappear for no particular reason that anybody knows of other than the fact that all the toxins that are over in their country tend to be not here how do you get something about how indians would kill each other out of that and and it's like no this is this is my pretend fantasy thing now at the same time, I once made a video that was about uh, Native American harvesting stuff. And um, I errantly said that it's a lot like permaculture. And I was corrected, and I agree with how I was corrected, that permaculture is a lot like the way Native Americans did things 400 years ago. And that what they would do is that they would go out into the wild and they would harvest, but they wouldn't harvest too much. And they would try to do things in such a way so as to encourage the things that they liked and discourage the things that they didn't like. So it's not exactly a garden, but it kind of is. And it's very much a polyculture. I just kind of thought that was super cool. On top of that, I remember having dinner one night with a native dude, and his whole thing was to say, like, have you tasted camas? I mean, potatoes are awesome, <laughs> you know? It's like, there's, there's, sure, and in this movie we just watched, there was a whole lot of stuff of, like, they took away our culture. They forced us to not do our culture. They, And it, it went into a lot of detail about that, and I kind of felt like, yeah, these are these are things I kind of already knew about, and it hurts me to watch it, and I feel... I don't know, indignation and shame and all kinds of stuff about it. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, and granted, it seems like a lot of these people are like, we're, we still want to fight for like, you know, rebuilding our culture and stuff. And it's like, yeah, do that. And, um, I kind of hope, I'm going to say, I hope that our world, our society is like more, cool with like rebuilding some of that culture now than it may have been 
50 years ago. I think that's from the video they showed. It was from like 50 years ago, like 1970. That's about right, yeah. I mean, they were interviewing some of the people now who were like in that video 50 yeah. years ago, and they looked old-ish, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I know a lot of the... Um, like native hunting rights um, and hunting and fishing rights were reevaluated during the civil rights era. I know, so there's a lot of, like that included a lot of um, political activity organizing, which has allowed for uh, the tribes to have access to their traditional hunting and fishing areas, the ones that still exist that haven't been destroyed by dams and stuff. Um, and so that's you know that's within living memory, like. Most people remember um, the 1970s. So I remember watching a show like 15 years ago. It was on PBS, and I can't remember what it was called. But the idea was is that they took like five families and they plopped them out in Montana, and they videoed them <laughs> struggling to, you know, get get started, and you know, before winter came, kind of a thing, and. Um, <clears throat> The sad part about this series uh, was that everybody got one week of training, and that, but the the series seemed to focus on the drama between the people rather than the techniques that people used. But they were, as fall was setting in, they were getting kind of hungry, and so they did a thing where it's like, um, well, here we are in the year. I don't know. I'm going to guess it was like 2004. Here it is in 2004. And there's deer all over the place trying to eat whatever you're growing, and you're not allowed to touch them because of modern law. But um, we've talked to uh, one of the local tribes, and they uh, solved your problem for you a little bit. Here's a, here's a couple of uh, deer. They're allowed to harvest whenever they want. Yeah. And uh, they've decided to share this with you because they took pity on you, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I kind of thought, all right, well, there are some differences in laws. And I know that um, decades ago, I was a librarian for uh, the Northwest Power Planning Council. And so I learned a lot about power stuff. And um, I learned, um, I didn't read the details. I mean, I was a, I was a librarian. Do you, do you mean power in terms of electricity? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know where you're The with people this. with the guns, man. Yeah. No, no, it was. Well, that's a part of our conversation as well, you know. It's true. It was electricity. And um, I remember there was a bunch of stuff where it's like, no, we got to make these laws this way because these native people are allowed to uh, fish year-round and hunt year-round. And so, you know, they are, there are exceptions to these laws for all the other people. But, like, it came up at, at one point in the movie, the stuff about how they were fighting a dam going in. Yeah. And um, I know that decades ago... I I thought the most profound thing that I learned while working there was that at that point that the dams had uh, eliminated 95% of the salmon. And I'm, I, I, I worry that it's even worse now than it was then. But, but the lack of salmon was having... And that's just 
one species. Yeah. I mean, I, and the, I, the documentation on all the other problems with hydropower was profound, and yet I keep hearing people talk about how clean hydro is, and it's like it's an environmental shitstorm. It is horrible. Agreed. And and it's like on the other hand, micro hydro does not have that kind of impact, but that's generally illegal, right. you know. And it, uh, but that was a podcast. That's the only podcast I have with Sepp Holzer is talking about that very issue through an interpreter. I think something I noticed is it, there was a general. Um, point that was trying to come across is that due to essentially like bad regulations and poor land management and poor management of the natural resources resulted in the um, the problems that these people are facing and something I couldn't help but but feel that's like I mean this isn't just happening to indigenous people like this is affecting everybody like all around the world even like poor land management practices and and poorly managing natural resources is essentially the problem that that is depleting fish out of rivers and um, healthy animals out of you know environments and plants and all sorts of things so at one point in time it had these guys that were trying to get some salmon and they were trying to use nets mm. and um a couple I mean they're trying so hard they're I mean everybody in this movie is trying so hard and they're making headway and I was I guess I was hoping for a movie where all of these people were ten times further than what they were and I I, I desperately want to know where they go or even a hundred times further um, and I, uh, Scott was asking me about video the other day, and I was telling him about how I was over uh, near Port Townsend, and I took all this video of these amazing Camas prairies that were being restored to the way they were like 400 years ago. And um, I lost all that video. <clears throat> and that's kind of part of the video game is like shit happens. Oh, it just, you know, so... <clears throat> It's hard to get a video put together. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so um, I, as as he was out there with, because like one of the things I was thinking is like he's going to go get this salmon. It's going to be loaded, I'm going to use the word loaded to the gills with mercury. Yeah, I know. I, it's like, uh, I actually thought I'd avoid that for a second there. And it's like, no, nope, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. But I'm also kind of thinking of, like, all the microplastics that concentrate in an animal like a salmon. And um, then, of course, you know, they spend most of their life out in the ocean and all the garbage that's out there. And I, and then there's, I mean, there's just so much more toxic waste that just gets dumped into the oceans. And so then I'm kind of thinking, like, they're going to go out and catch the salmon to be kind of trying to get back to where they were and it used to be that they could probably throw that net in there and it's like I'm going to pull out enough salmon to feed us for like a couple weeks yeah. you know and uh, now it's like I'm going to spend all day and get nothing yeah. um, and and so but I kind of think like he's going to get a salmon and it's like dude I'm not sure you want to eat that <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about you man um, and so I kind of 
I've, uh, as I travel down this path and I, I've got so much pain in watching this movie I'm kind of thinking to myself like if we succeed in what we're trying to do can we create an environment that is so beautiful and so enticing that so many people want to do this or even something halfway to what we're doing that will that solve a lot of these problems um, instead of and, and I kind of feel like I'm getting really sick of people yelling at me and saying that my work is monstrous because really I'm I'm uh, taking people away from protesting mm. so there's if I wasn't doing the work that I'm doing if we weren't doing the work that we're doing more people would be able to join protests or more people would choose to join protests and then we would get more action and I kind of feel like yeah, you know what? You, you guys have been working on that for like more than a decade. I I think uh, I think it's our turn. You right. know. Well, I yeah, I had a a mentor at one point who told me that he thought, you know, everyone should have an activist phase. Um, and I at first at that point in time, I had totally strived to be an activist. Um, but that you know, you have this activist phase. Uh, but you'll eventually grow out of it. And that was really shocking to me. Uh, after trying to be an activist for several years, I went to protests. I realized that that's just not who I was. I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was fulfilling my mission, um, protesting. Um, but I totally felt like I was fulfilling my mission when I was cooking food for, um, uh, for for the protesters, or when I was like facilitating, um, uh, we used to do a lot of food not bombs stuff mm -hmm. in downtown. I used to do a lot of that, um, and that was more more where I was drawn to spend my energy. And I I think that a lot of us we're just not really wired to be protesters, and that our form of activism really is to build. A, you know, build a better world. Um, I feel like right now I'm fulfilling that that sense of activism more than I ever have before, um, and it has nothing to do with protests. I don't want anything to do with protests right now um, because all of my activism is in building, um, and I think that that's that's fine. Um, so I got a couple. I, I want to hit you with a couple questions. These are the questions that I asked. I've asked myself hundreds of times. So I want to lay them on you and see what your answers are, and if they're anywhere near mine. When you protest, do you feel like you're on a rigged playing field that's rigged against you? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With the work that you're doing now, would I mean, I'm I'm going to. Okay, how about I'm, how about this? I'm going to assume that you feel like what you're doing to improve the world is greater than when you were protesting. But I want to I want to ask for a number. How much greater? <clears throat> I actually have seen change come from protesting, and okay. I think that there is a there is a legitimate place for that especially in communities that are underrepresented um, I remember specifically I spent a lot of time uh, just marveling at how much change could come from 
a hundred protesters standing with this group of migrant workers that were being forced into um, uh, really uh, just terrible working conditions. And so there's this really great community of organizers who worked with the migrant farmers and coordinated protests to get basically get more visibility for this issue and it totally worked you know you get a couple hundred people protesting then um all of a sudden that issue gets bigger more people see it it has more and that's great that really that actually solved some problems um but not all problems can be solved that way. A lot of a lot of the times, you know, like for for most of the really important things, like the government's not going to come up with a solution for that. They're not going to figure that one out. Um, the only way to solve these issues is to actually, you know, start doing it today um, for yourself in your own backyard. Uh, and so I think, you know. I don't think it's... You think it's too squirrely to put a number on? <clears throat> They're different things. Yeah, you know, like, this movie wouldn't have been created except for that it was created by activists, you know? Like, it, yeah, was, it was created true. by the people who are going to be organizing the protests. Um, maybe not the exact same people, but it's that same kind of spirit. Yeah. Um, and someone like me, I see a movie like this, and it inspires me to do more in my backyard so I think that there's a reciprocal thing going on and they're two you know they're two sides of the same coin um they're both necessary I don't think I don't think that um they're really comparable well I think one issue is like you can protest something and I think in some cases that's that's valid and justified and a good thing to do but if you don't have an alternative to the thing you're protesting it doesn't do any good like everybody just kind of looks at it and says yeah that's bad and I still get my power from the same source and my groceries from the same store because that's how you live life and so like building the alternative is necessary for any protest to have any appreciable effect it reminds me of something uh, I'm going to butcher this quote so forgive me already but I believe it was by Buckminster Fuller who says like you don't create change or if you really want to create change you create a new paradigm that renders the old paradigm obsolete yeah, yeah. no I agree with that yeah. and I think that's what we're doing mm -hmm. right I mean it's like all those people so many people are protesting fracking and then they go home and they heat their home with natural gas. Yeah, exactly. And I and I kind of feel like we've. I mean, I've I've had a lot of people tell me like uh, that that, that uh, my TED talk <laughs> about heat, <clears throat> where I I've got three different forms, three different alternatives to being uh, warm uh, for you know far less energy than uh, that that it's like this is required viewing my my little TED talk. I, I thought that was pretty awesome. I, I like, but. Um, I kind of feel like it continues. Like, I, it frustrates me. I, and I wrote it in my book about how Ernie said that uh, his mother said that if you build a better mousetrap, basically exactly what you're talking about, the world will be the path to your door. And he says, my mom lied to me. I mean, think about all the work Ernie has done to make rocket mass heaters. And it's like he, he built a thing that saves the world. And... It's largely ignored. 
And it's like, uh, I mean, but of course, we have to have magnificent rocket mass heaters here in order for when, when people come and they experience rocket mass heaters, then they'll be like, these are amazing. These are awesome. Now I'm going to go home and build one. But of course, we're also a little shy on how we need to make more videos. I mean, we've made lots of podcasts. Podcasts are way easier. We could make lots of podcasts about the Rocket Mass Heaters, how, how well they're working here. We need more videos because that's persuasive and maybe more books and uh, more, 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 more. But it's kind of like it's starting to feel a little bit like what Ernie is saying. It's like we've got the better mousetrap. Why is it not taking off you know why do people need to have their hand held and and yeah okay alright so I'm sorry I'm going off and I teach I'm going to stop <laughs> going back to this movie that we all just watched um I want to try to skip past I mean I, they talked about genocide they also talked about which I think you know they make a point fair enough mm-hmm. but it it was like they also talked about uh, I should have written it down. Um, uh, perennial genocide might be, but but basically it's still going ongoing. on, ongoing genocide. And it's like yeah. it's more of a cultural genocide nowadays. Okay, well, all right. I think I think that the trauma that was physically delivered to your parents' generation will haunt you in a very real way even if it's 50 years later. She talked about being quiet for 40 years, and now Mm -hmm. she's starting to deal with this stuff. And it's like, that's not very long ago. And so I I agree. I think it is persistent in a way. Um, And also, I think that the genocide is is really just setting the context for this film. Um, And, you know, it has a lot of really positive, um, positive things about it. And, you know, it's through this process of uh, developing a better world that all of these individuals are healing from the reality of their the genocide in their, in their life and in their parents' lives. It does seem like there was a lot of work on personal healing for all, for everybody in yeah. this in this movie. Well, I think you know one thing they're kind of getting at is like they talk about like um, diabetes and addiction and like a lot of the health problems that the tribe is disproportionately facing. And like I think if I remember correctly, at one point he refers to that as something like ongoing genocide. And at first you kind of think like. I don't know. That doesn't... I I, I wouldn't call that genocide, but it's like... I think the point they're making is, like, why do we have these health problems? It's because we're eating this crap diet, because we live in a food desert. Why is it a food desert? Because there was a deliberate governmental policy at one point to, like, they talk about, like, deliberately wiping out the buffalo as a means of subduing the tribes. You know, the land management and their access to fishing rights, which it sounds like they were talking to people who got clubbed in the head themselves over their fishing rights. So it's like, I do think there's that like the effects of the policies that were undertaken during like 
the genocide genocide are still affecting people like their mental health but also their physical health and like they're trying to redress some of that by reintroducing the native food sources and skills and like the foraging lady talked about holistic health so like when you're going out and foraging not only are you eating better food but like there's work that goes into it you're out there in the sun you're doing physical movement and like you have a meaning in your life and so you're not true. suffering as much from the depression and the emptiness. I'm yeah. It seemed like they were talking about in their before life. Yeah. They were a bit of a zero, and they you know kind of uh, alluded to that. Right. Um, but then now it sounds like they've got each of them are heroes in adding substance, magnificent substance to their life. And and it's like, it's so different now. Yeah. There's so much to do, so much they want to do, so much more they want to do. Right. And they're doing it. They're getting it done. And yeah. they're proud of themselves. And they are like, you know, champions again. Whereas just a short while ago, it was, you know, the road to nowhere. Right. There was a sentiment expressed in in the documentary that I couldn't help but write down, and I think it was used in the context of, in particular, of overcoming addiction um, that one of the characters had dealt with. But I think it kind of covers the, the, the overall meaning of the documentary, and it's that recovery is changing behaviors, and that um, in order to recover as a person, you have to change your how you behave as a person and if you want to recover a land you have to change your behavior towards the land and uh to me that's resonated deep and i think that's the overall message of the documentary is that in order for us to be able to fix these problems that they're talking about is we have to change we each have to personally make changes in and part of it, we can, yeah. And part of it is change to what? And right. and I think that's I I want to go and visit with them and talk more about to what. Right. Um all right, I want to I want to kind of end the political thing. The only the last political note I I have is that I I kind of felt like there were a couple of points in the movie where it's like fucking white people, man. And and I kind of feel like they probably edited out the part where it's like okay everybody let's go get our guns and go kill us some white people like it just seemed like they were getting so worked up and kind of like angered about white people so you're, you guys are not agreeing with me I was, kind of, I I, I was feeling that, twisted yeah. like if they come to my house then my I'm sure I'm not red enough oh, no. <laughs> there, well there was that quote in the very beginning of the movie that was like he started talking about uh, genocide, mm -hmm. and he said, "If you know, if anything that we're talking about makes you uncomfortable, don't shut it out. Yeah. Like it's gonna be uncomfortable to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, examine it." And I, I think I, I didn't perceive any like ill will towards white people. Um, you know, they. Really strong statements, but all those statements are totally historically accurate. It seemed more like they were pretty pissed about what happened to Native people, but it. I didn't actually get the feeling like. I don't remember them really saying, like, because of those evil white people, it was just like they're pissed that this happened, right? Like, which, you know, 
legit. <laughs> it, it, I, I was kind of thinking strategically, maybe it's yeah. the thing to do is, is like nothing brings people together like a common enemy. Mm. And so you bring these people together and it's like, let's, you know, because white people killed so many of us and they're still fucking with us and whatever else, then let's all get together and do our own thing instead or whatever. That, so, that's a uh, huge. That's a really huge part of the movie, um, because you know there's that there's that line. It's like, man, if you don't do this today, if you don't practice this culture today, your whole culture will disappear. Like, you are the only person in your tribe who is doing this thing. And when you have that, that like, the reality that your culture will be extinguished, I think it's, you know, it, it's totally legit to feel like everybody's an enemy at that point, right? Yeah. Well, okay, all right. So, I'm going to attempt to move on to just the lovely things. Cool. I'm down with that. Okay. All right. All right. Very beginning of the movie. I was very happy to see the woman who was a... First of all, she wore the title Master Forager. Right. So I'm thinking like, ooh, sweet. Is there like a Master Forager program somewhere? Like you can go sign up and you do a certain number of hours. Local ag agency. Well, I'm joking. Yeah. Now it just lost all its fun. Thanks, Jen. Sorry. But I was going to say, like you do so much classwork and then you take a test or something, like you're going to go out get most, some food and not die or something. I mean, most states do have master naturalist programs, which involve some of that stuff, which is cool. Yeah. yeah. I was just, so I was just kind of excited to see master forager. I was like, bring it on. I was so anyway, she goes out and sure enough, and, and, and it's like, uh, I'm going to imagine it's in Arizona somewhere, but there's a big conifer tree and a bunch of dried up weeds. And I kind of thought, yeah, that looks like it could be here in my Montana. So, um, and they're going out there, and then they uh, they grab some plant, and they're pulling the seeds out for some reason. And I think that you know we're kind of getting a little bit of a warm up to the movie. Is the right. idea like something to show while the credits are still going by? Maybe I, and and then it looked like, and I could be wrong. But the way I do threshing is what I call pillowcase threshing. Yeah. And I got a, I made a little video about it, a little YouTube video. It's like not even a minute long. And I show how I do it. And it looked like she had a pillowcase and they were putting the stuff in the book. And then she's telling the girl to stomp on it, on it which yeah. is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, it wasn't super obvious, but you hear her say to the girl, like, before corn, this is what we used. These seeds oh. are what we used. I didn't catch that part. Yeah. It seems like she kept trying to use the native words for things, mm -hmm. and I was kind of thinking, like... I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. What, what are we looking at? What is that? You know? And, and I was pretty sure it was amaranth. Oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Because <laughs> I wasn't figuring it out what it was. Um, and uh, all right. So there was a little bit of threshing going on. Pillowcase threshing is what I call it. Yeah. And then they did a little wind wi uh, winnowing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, okay, but amaranth, that's good to know. Well, and, and there was that, I mean, great technique in there of like, threshing and winnowing where you harvest it 
because you're inevitably going to spread some of the seeds. I was, you know, they were replanting it at the same time, right. by processing it in, you know, in the field. And I mean, and she said that explicitly, like yeah. she took a handful, like of the chaff, and told the girl, "Throw that out there, because what's left in here will grow back for next year." Well, so wasn't cool. it supposed to be dedicated to like the god of something or another? Yeah, yeah and they also said like thanks. Yeah, essentially. she taught the little girl to say thank you in their language as she was casting the mm. the leftover seeds and stuff back out into the mm. area. Okay. Cool. That was a big theme in the movie was appreciation and respect for the foods themselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. The plants, the animals. So uh, then we started hearing about um, food shed versus food desert. Right. And, you know, this is a pretty common theme. Uh, a lot of communities, and they pointed out that in their community, they don't even have a grocery store. They have a convenience store, um, which has, you know, a lot of sugared stuff and things like that. You know, at a gas station kind of a thing. And um, it seemed like they were trying to take steps to reverse the food desert by growing some gardens they they were i was i was really hoping to see the kinds like like the camas prairie style of gardening right but instead it was like conven- it, was, it was relatively conventional well i think that the the apache is if i might be wrong about this but i'm pretty sure the apache were agricultural they you know, they they subsisted on buffalo but also they grew squash and corn and beans in food plots that they worked. Yeah, I, I believe um, towards the beginning of the diet. The, sorry. The, yeah, that is a, I think that is... It could be traditional techniques. You know, they were using a plastic hoop house and stuff like that, but they were actually gardeners. Yeah. Traditionally, yeah. so... Did they do rows? Yeah. I don't know. I, I just remember hearing at the beginning that, that they... Uh, that she, as she was taking the girl out to go collect and forage, she said, "You know, this area used to be so much more green when even the people were yeah. were cultivating." Yeah. Yeah. Even when she was a little girl, she said, "The older lady who was taking the girl out said, when I was little, this used to be so much more green." So it seems like even within her lifetime, the the landscape was degrading but yeah and they were trying to make that cafe which i thought was really cool so they're like because of the food desert they're building this like throughout the documentary you kind of hear the story of them trying to put in this cafe that's like serving traditional apache foods and it's also like buying from the local foragers and gardeners and farmers in the area and then serving the community so that like because they view food as a form of healing um, and to kind of remedy some of the like, you know, we're all drinking Gatorade and eating candy bars from the local convenience store because there's nothing else out here kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.